Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Tim is here. Tim missed the story, so so you need to retell this. <laughs> Tim, we were worried about you. you okay. Yeah, just fine. I just got involved in a renovation project and just completely lost track of the time. So I was just making up stuff until you came. <laughs> I thought you make it up all the time anyway. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm happy to meet next Tuesday uh, again. If any of you want to do that, I'll just send out. And even after that, after that, I'm going on vacation, but I'll be back. And so if any of you are still going through it, and are still having trouble, uh, let me know. So, I, just say we, I say we just keep meeting in perpetuity, you know, yeah. every day from now on. We'll find yeah. something to talk about. Oh, eventually you'll overdose on Macon. The idea in this chapter is that, okay, and, and of course the whole thing depends on, uh, we're switching from atheism to theism and the implications of believing in God. I think you could have read this whole book and agreed with it and have been an atheist up to this point. And that's sort of my point about Romans chapter 7. In other words, I think that Zizek is giving us a clear picture of what a a self-created subject looks like. And I think we can agree with, for the most part, with his analysis. But this is the chapter where I say, yeah, but we got to go beyond that. And so what does it look like? And I I really think the contrast is not simply between Zizek and Christianity, but it's between Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. I mean, 7, 7 and following. So that that I picture what Paul is doing there is describing the unregenerate. And so what a, you know, grand tragedy that a good portion of Christians read Romans chapter 7 as if, you know, Calvin says, oh no, this is regenerate man. This is what it looks like to be saved. But I think once you get into chapter 8 and look at what's missing in chapter 7, there is no Holy Spirit, there is no God the Father, there is no prayer, there is no hope, there is no love. You know, just start going through it. What's missing in chapter 7 and what's there in 8, that's the contrast. Paul, um, I, I don't know if this fits or not, but is this the, within the church for years, we, we hear this, this slogan or this, this idea, hey, we're, we're sinners, right? Saved by grace. And we, we emphasize that rather than, uh, in some sense, um, Paul seems to identify with the saint analogy uh, when he talks about Christians, but for some reason within the church, we seem to focus on that sinner um, part, but we're saved, right? We're a sinner, but but saved. And so I, does that fit or is that? That's the, that's the way that, the way that Calvin talks about it. You know, that Paul's agonistic struggle, his split, you know, self-alienation, his recognition of sin, his internal suffering, Calvin says that's all a byproduct of being regenerate. And what I would say is, well, 
No, that that is a depiction of the reality of what sin does. Now, there may be a, a sense in which what Paul is describing, he was not completely aware of. In other words, I would agree that it may be that people in this sort of suffering don't understand the cause of their suffering. But Paul was a killer as a Pharisee. And I don't think murderous individuals are real happy. So it's true that he did not agonize over his sin. But I think that what we're de- what is being depicted for us, and he's depicting it, of course, I think it's the Adam, but it's the Adam that is every man. This is the reality of the human condition of which I presume we cannot be aware as long as we're in that condition. In other words, by the time we get to chapter 8, we're contrasting it. We look back at chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a Christian's view of his understanding of what he looked like as a unregenerate person that he only understands from the viewpoint of being regenerate. So I would agree that chapter 7 is from the viewpoint, from the insight of salvation. And all of that is to say that we only understand what sin is from salvation. And that is being depicted for us clearly in chapter 7. But chapter 7 is not a picture of salvation. It's a picture of sin from the insight that comes with redemption. Am I talking about what you asked me, David? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that, I mean, uh, it seems to connect with me. And I think the, the big thing is, is um, we have so many uh, Christianese type phrases and words that really are not biblical, but we've incorporated in into um, into our lives and um, maybe in, into our practices as well. I, I mean, I, I think that's why it's so important that we can't just arrive. I mean, maybe you're you're taught something at a certain age, but I, I feel like deconstruction and reconstruction are a continuous process uh, in in the believer, which I don't see a lot of that per per se. I think we hold on to some phrases, and and then that becomes our identity of sorts. He said, Paul said, I'm not a sinner anymore. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Chapter 8 is, thank God I've been delivered. Chapter 7 is about the flesh. In Calvinism and uh, a good portion, a good number of Christians, not just Calvinists, think, oh, the flesh is something that you put off with the body. Wait a minute, read chapter 8. It's all about that now we have this ability not to live in the flesh, that we can walk as Christ walked, that there, you know, in chapter 7, there was this incapacity to do what I wanted to do. Chapter 8, suddenly there is the capacity to walk as he walked and do what he did. There is a, a, a facility for love. Love of God and love of neighbor are, are talked about in chapter 8, that we call, no longer is it God pictured as a lawgiver, but it's Abba, Father, whatever Abba means. You know, I know that People get irritated with making that too colloquial. But whatever it means, it is a description of uh, a relationship that Christ has with his Father that we share in, so that there is an immediate access to the Father through the Son, and it's no longer mediated by the law. The way that Calvin and other, and I just pick on Calvin. I, by the way, I this Sunday I preached and C.J. was there. And C.J. Dahl is a professor. He, he may be one of the premier Greek scholars. 
he, he said, this is really an Augustinian problem. And I said, well, of course it is. Yeah, it goes back to Augustine. But I think that Calvin is just kind of the culmination of that Western theological trend, that you're going to find this everywhere, that people are going to describe sin as kind of a mystery. And that's right out of Augustine, that he literally calls it a mystery. And of course, that's connected to his mistranslation there in chapter 5 of we've all sinned in Adam. That's just not true. That's not what Paul is saying, but that's what it says in the Latin Vulgate. And that's what our theology has flowed out of that mistranslation. And so this whole book is about a kind of refutation of that notion that sin is a mystery. There's no mystery to it. We just ran it down for 10 chapters. And we said, okay, here's the way this thing functions. And it functions as a way of apprehending God, ourselves, and the world. And our kind of trivial notions of the human predicament or the sin problem, I think are largely a byproduct. In other words, I think it's all there in Scripture, but it's a byproduct of this misreading. So if nothing else, we've dispelled that misreading and we say, no, sin's not a mystery. It can be explicated. It can be explained. And here's the way it works. And here is the resolution to it. And of course, this is the part that Zizek, because he doesn't believe in God, what, what we're claiming here is that there is a resource outside of the individual that we truly can participate. And that's the opening of the chapter. I don't know if I use the word theosis, but that's what chapter eight is describing, that it is a Trinitarian chapter in that the, the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all depicted in chapter 8, and that's laid out for us. And the interesting thing, of course, is that where in typical understanding of faith, it's a kind of faith in Christ. We've talked about this, that Christ is the object. And here, I think there is a demonstration of the faith of, meaning that we, that we are in the place of Christ in our understanding of God and the world that we put on the mind of Christ. That's what Paul is describing in chapter 8, that here it, we, we are going to have the perspective of the Son in our view of the Father and, and of our brothers and sisters and of the world. Step one. After that, every section of the chapter, I think, I, I was real excited. I don't know if it comes through. I was real excited writing this because I sort of the relief that you feel in reading it, that was the relief I felt in writing it. Because suddenly I, I was seeing, you know, I was seeing the profundity in a sense, you know, it's like the diamond shines best against a black cloth. That now we understand what the Christian alternative amounts to. And it's an all-inclusive understanding. And so, part one, life in the imaginary versus the spirit of hope. Are you all familiar with Jürgen Moltmann? I think one of Moltmann's profound books is on the theology of hope. I think it's been misunderstood. Many people would attribute Moltmann with the impetus behind liberation theology. I, don't, I think that's a misconstrual of who Moltmann is. But, uh, but the profound work of Moltmann is on Christian hope. Even though I'm just, I just referenced him, I think, one time, uh, but actually Leonardo Boff, that there is this idea of a real-world liberation in liberation theology. I think liberation theology in its impetus was 
kind of Marxist liberation and, and violent. Uh, but I think that, that it has unfolded from there, and there is this idea of a real-world liberation. And in that sense, I think that that does flow out of Moltmann's picture of hope, that hope is not simply this futuristic thing, but it is a present tense alternative to a kind of enslavement. The word that I'll use later is Augenblink. I know you all got it real excited about Augenblink. I'm probably saying it wrong. That is that you see the future coming to you into the present and changes up the past. That is a description of psychoanalysis. That's what psychoanalysis is trying to do for you. And in this, you know, I, I think that psychoanalysis is just a secularized form of Christian hope. This is what hope does for you. It changes up your world, uh, changes up your story because of the future that you're living out in the present so that your past is now cohering in a way with all of that in a way that it didn't. That may be a, a complicated way of saying that the difference between hope and life in the imaginary, life in the ma imaginary is primarily visual. It's scopic. I'm curious, Nathan, how this resonates with Levinas, because it's just a question, because I literally believe that human subjectivity is initially grounded in the scopic drive. And by that, I mean even someone who's blind. The visual metaphor reigns. And so the mind's eye is there, even if you don't have literal eyes, so that visually, this is the ordering principle in the life of the imaginary. I think that's there in Paul in chapter 7 when he's describing this eye, he's using the visual. I'm not saying that we set aside the visual, but in chapter 8, we're no longer using the visual metaphor. It, well, actually, he, he does. You know, he'll actually use the visual metaphor in a contradictory way. But you know, in, in talking about hope, hope is that you can't see what you hope for. And of course, in part, he's talking about Christ. What displaces the ego and how is this displaced? Well, I think in part, what we're describing is a different dynamic and that it's functioning according to an auditory rather than a scopic dynamic. That we see Christ by hearing him. Now, you might think, oh, you're going to have to take LSD. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, but you can actually change up. You can see sound and you can hear color. I don't mean just on a drug trip. I'm saying that what, what takes place, I think, in Christian conversion is a shift in the, the privileging of we shift from sight to, to, to the Word of God. Is that too much? Is that too heavy? That ties in a little bit to the mirror stage. And that, you know, Freud is talking about, and Lacan, they're talking about literally that the child orders his self-understanding through his image in the mirror. Paul is going to use the imagery of the mirror in two instances. I think, in, in, and by the way, Alan, this is, these are both in Corinthians. Corinth was a, a place where they manufactured mirrors. And in one instance, he uses the mirror the way that, that, that Freud uses the mirror. And in the other instance, he uses it the way that, you know, the idea in Romans 8, that actually we're changed by viewing Christ. You know, the idea here is that we're shifting up in hope, 
in the imaginary or in the visual metaphor, you lose the capacity for passage through time. That is, time is a threat to you. Time will undo you. Think of, you know, the difference between taking a picture and having a recording. That a picture, we could freeze frame this picture and we'd get a pretty good idea what this class looks like. But if you would just take a, a, a segment of the recording, it would just be a nonsense sound. And so sound comes to us then through the dynamism of time. And that's the picture of hope, that hope is one that carries us through a dynamic process, that we're no longer undone. I, that, that's a complicated way of talking about a, a fairly simple thing. In other words, the ego is static. The self as object is static. But so is Christ as object. We can do Christianity in which Christ is just a different object. And I think that hope does that it undoes that. That is that this participation in Christ is the difference between life and the magic. Well, I was going to jump in a little bit, but um, I was thinking a couple of things. The uh, you were asking about Levinas and subjectivity, and um, one thing I I liked about this chapter, and I kept uh, making note of, is that transformation of the subject. And so I'm always some of the questions I've always had is. What leads to that transformation? Another another question I wrote down is, what does this new subject look like? So the way you kind of answer it is, um, the new subject that's been united with Christ, now under the law of the spirit of life, Like what, what are some implications of that? One, it reorients our relationship to God, I guess. So we see God as Abba Father and not as some, you know, person who, or being that's going to, uh, punish and reward and this kind of thing and then the like with Levinas it's the like the emergence of the ethical subject uh, it falls within a structure of call call and response so similar to the uh, the idea you said the idea you said when we we see Christ by hearing him and then for Levinas it's always the response of here I am you know that that spills over into um, self-emptying acts of love and compassion for others or something, right? Like the ethical, the ethical subject. So yeah, I'm always interested in kind of like what comes after this, this self transformation. What does, you know, hope is central for the law of life in the spirit, the new subject or self, the subject of life with the capital S, the subject of life. You say a couple of times I wrote emerges through the work and law of the spirit. And, and then through, and then on page one, or 176, you write, through the spirit adoption as sons enables his sons to cry, Abba. The spirit seems to be pretty central and also like that we're adopted as children of God. And, but yeah, I guess I'm just, those are some of the things circling around in my head. I don't know what the call and response structure is maybe, uh, maybe a little bit different than like that. You do say on 176.2, the, the spirit is the source of life who empowers the walk and mindset of those in whom he dwells or something like, you know, so you, the spirit does lead us to like, to action or something. I don't know. I guess maybe as a Levinasian, I'm always interested in like the, the ethical action part, but the response part yeah. after the, tra after the, the, the new subject is formed. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, uh, there is in this, I, I noticed as I was reading through this, I thought of you, that there's a little, at one point I say there's the I and the Tao, the, a very Boober. Boober, Boober, yeah, yeah great, yeah. great book. Um, 
And of course, that's the picture here is that if we were to do the negative of the spirit, it's death. It's the di- it is the death drive. The spirit is displacing death. It means that life is displacing death. Think the dynamism of death and the dynamism of life. We can actually identify these things. Death is alienating, separating, and <clears throat> gives rise to internal suffering. And of course, it's connected to an empty word, which we get to later in the chapter. So spirit is gives us a fullness of the word that now we have a word that is not disconnected from the body in other words i think that in this tripartite structure what we have the symbolic is actually floats free of the body and that there's an incapacity to do the law now suddenly through the spirit uh, we're tied into in other words what we're describing is participation in the trinity as our image bears, that now we're enabled to do the law of life and the spirit. That is that our our words are no longer death-dealing. They're no longer empty. They're no longer incapacitated, but they are words of the spirit. And so I think that's part of it, that ethics then is enabled through this new human subjectivity. And it is disenabled by there is an incapacity because the of the the split i think calvin's right if chapter seven is the end point you're just stuck in the flesh forever but what we're talking about is that paul is describing the death of the sin principle which he calls life in the flesh and now it's life in the spirit so i think that's the the idea here that, you know, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? And everybody says in unison, life, right? Not speaking in tongues, not all those other things. All of those are indicators of life, uh, that we have life. And life and love and connectedness and participation, you know, I think all of those things should, should start resonating. So the Trinity is a communion. Communion is communication. You know, that's why there's prayer in chapter 8, and there's no prayer in chapter 7, because there is no communion. But what this is saying is God himself is a communion. God himself is communication, enabled by the Spirit, and this same Spirit is one that we participate in. I would say it this way, and somebody can object, but it seems like that ontologically you're participating in a different order of reality. And I don't mean to say that, of course, just being human, there's the sense that we live and move and have our being in who God is. But here, there is the sense that we take up this within our own subjectivity, and we put up, put off a subjectivity that is actually a nothingness. That's too strong, but the, the idea of a centeredness on an absence. I I thought of Levinas because suddenly there is the opening. You know, I think there is in all of this, the acknowledgement of others and of being acknowledged. In other words, that's part of what, what we're describing here. But the idea is, yeah, but we've been acknowledged by God in Christ. And then the, uh, the assurance of Christian hope is just building on that versus amidst futility. Futility is a word that matiotis, or in it's the, the word for lie. It's actually there that the whole creation has been subjected to futility. 
I think we can connect that back to chapter three, is it? Where he talks about the lying lips and tongue and mouth, and he talks about it as dealing in death. The futility is still there in chapter eight, but the whole creation has been subjected to this futility. But now, in other words, we've set aside this futility. The futility is no longer what structures who and what we are through hope. If you go to psychotherapy or Lacanian psychotherapy, my point here is that what they're actually doing, they're not assuming that they can change up the structure. They can just kind of manipulate it. But what I'm saying that Christianity is claiming is, no, actually, we change up the structure. The structure is still a trinity, but now it's a fullness of trinity. It's not the absence of God. It's the presence of God. And this, this presence is a, as a Trinitarian presence. Christianity should be functioning as a true therapy. Unfortunately, I don't think it is. I think people still need psychotherapy because the therapeutic aspect of what Christianity should be doing for us is left behind in this theology that is focused on the law, manipulating the law. This is kind of the starting claim of the book. Psychoanalysis is rightfully the domain of theology, but we gave up this domain with a bad theology. Um, you know, in that section, uh, you mentioned, you speak of Zizek believing there is a, an unredeemable aspect to the subject or to human experience. Why does Zizek refuse redemption? Why won't he go from Romans 7 to Romans 8? What, what, he doesn't believe it? I mean... <laughs> Actually, this was a question that one of when I went through the oral exam, one of the examiners, Gerald Laughlin, asked me this. He said, "What do you think? How do you think Zizek would react to your book?" And I jokingly said, "I think he would become a Christian, <laughs> because that's what we're faced with." In other words, here is the hard reality: he's a true atheist, and what we're doing now is you can't do this. You know, I really believe in an alternative to this atheistic subjectivity. I, I even hesitate to call it a materialistic reality that Zizek believes in, because I just think he loses everything in this. So I think that he really believes that you cannot do what I'm doing or what Paul, the Apostle Paul, is doing without falling back into the perversion. I think for him, the ideology or the perverseness of it will always for him, I think there's only one understanding of God, and it is that kind of perverse understanding. Sure. To be fair to Zizek, I, I'm assuming that sadly, most of the Christianity he's come across is of the perverse variety. Yeah, I'm guessing so. Uh, although you understand that many people are picking up his stuff, and I don't know if anybody's gone as far with it as I have. Marcus Pound has, and of course, a lot of people pick it up and just take it at face value. So there are people that appreciate because he is giving us uh, at least the, he is very much against a, a kind of Calvinist understanding. And so there is that opening, that entree uh, into an alternative atonement theory that is there in his picture of how it is that death is this thing that we take up. I think that's what the book is described. Death isn't just something that happens to us at the end of our life. Death is a thing that we can continually uh, take up in our life. And so 
I think a lot of people have appreciated his depiction of ideology, his depiction of death drive. Or the reason I was saying that, and I think he's been exposed to those people, that a lot of his conversation partners, he's not antagonistic toward that brand of Christianity. Uh, and so he's he gets invited. I mean, you'd have to be an unusual Christian college, but he does he does get invited to. Uh, but I don't know how much of that he's absorbed or how much he understands yeah. of a alternative. Did you already do what I thought was one of the best things that you did in this chapter was to show what categories are displaced by what Christian categories displace them? You know, so in other words, like the ego is displaced by what? You know, the superego is displaced by what? The body of death is this. Have you done that already? They know, everybody knows this by heart. I thought it was helpful because that's what we've been spending the whole time. I just want to make sure you haven't already done it. And I just wasn't listening. You know what I mean? But but what I was saying is, is that since the whole class has been about these Lacanian registers, the Zizakian registers, what is the ego? What is the law? What is the, you know, the real? I thought that the clincher in this chapter was when you showed how all those things are displaced in a new type of subjectivity. Yeah. What would display, in other words, the life force of chapter seven is desire. Lacan says, do not give way on your desire. So what displaces desire, in other words, desire is scopic, desire is visual, desire is this always attain uh, an attempt to obtain and even that Lacan they, they know this they understand this is a frustrated desire it's an unfulfillable desire but for Lacan and Zizek that's all you got because that is the life force is that you'll be eternally frustrated that is the ego the ego is frustration in its essence and so what we just described in going from the scopic to the auditory, to hope, I believe hope displaces desire. Hope puts, it's not like, oh, suddenly we won't have those desires, but those desires will be put in, the, in place. It's no longer a life force that controls us. Hope puts all of these things in their proper perspective. You know, we went through all of the things that you can do with an exponential desire. I think that is what gives rise to human sacrifice. That is Girardian theory. So desire is displaced by hope. You know, if you did the tripartite self, the ego is actually Christ, right? But it's not Christ as an object, it's our participation in Christ. Death is displaced by life or by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit. The superego, the law, you know, is undone. It's displaced by Abba, Father. Oh, I'm wondering what the, for St. Paul, what displaces the body of death? Uh, life in the spirit. Yeah. And, yeah. and the body of death is death drive. It is, the, it is the death drive. And so part of what we're describing is now uh, is not, obviously, you don't do away with your body, but just the opposite. I think the body of death is a body that you never, ha it, it is not the biological body. We've talked about that. And so and there is the sense that we're incarnate in Christ. And prior to that, we are disincarnate. And what I mean by that is our bodies are written over with the law so that we don't have access to just our 
our bodies as biological bodies, that there is always an exponential desire that is overwritten. You know, that's what the law does. I did not know what it was to desire apart from the law. Well, now your whole body is written over with that desire. So that ordinary human things become exponentially desirous. So I think there is the sense that we just, we, we inhabit our physical bodies in the life and the spirit that we walk as he walked. We, you know, that the ethical capacity is there partly because everything is now put in its proper place, that food is food and sex is sex. And, you know, that those things then are not a life of the, you know, that's, you could take any of those and say, well, that for many people, that is their spiritual life. I don't know if it's fair to uh, Anthony Bourdain. I always thought, you know, what a wonderful person he seemed to be. But I always just wondered in, if he had the resources in the sort of work that he was in. There was a terrible movie, and don't watch it, uh, that is sort of at that kind of uh, Bourdain kind of level. It's, uh, have any of you seen it? Don't watch it. <laughs> but it, it's one of the worst movies I've seen. But it's Hollywood trying to be profound. You know, what does, what does profound look through Hollywood eyes? Well, it's Nicolas Cage in Pig. He's a chef. He's living out and he's collecting mushrooms. And this is, you know, he, it's almost Buddhist in his con contemplation of, you know, what a good meal looks like. And, and, you know, the bad guy in this story, you know, the one that did him bad and is trying to kill him, he cooks him a meal. And he's transformed by that meal. Uh, <laughs> it, how, is that, how is that a bad movie? <laughs> I had such great hopes, you know. Oh wow, they're gonna they're gonna do something profound here. Yeah, yeah it didn't quite. It's just it is trying too hard uh, to be profound with material that doesn't lend itself to profundity. How did I get off on that? Oh, the uh, the idea of what is displaced. So the body of death is undone. I mean, it sounds to me like in simple terms, what's displaced is the shadow self, the false self, the self that's grounded in nothing, uh, the self that's a construct, the self that's a fiction. That's, for St. Paul's, done away with in Christ. Uh, that's that self that's grounded in desire, uh, just the need to obtain, the drive to obtain, and the, the thing that we're attempting to attain is literally nothing. Yeah, that that's displaced by um, life in the spirit. That's the Romans eight two, that the law of the spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. Really, I think that should probably be the end of chapter seven. In my opinion, I think there's an unfortunate chapter break there um, because it kind of sums up everything that Paul's been saying. I think you know he says, and so that those that walk by the spirit, then you know there is no condemnation for those who walk by the spirit you know um, yeah yeah and the condemnation is what we've been reading about right it's a condemnable it, it's a damnable existence that paul has described in chapter seven it's not a future condemnation it's what he's just described what a damnable sort of way to live there is suffering in both chapters, but my point is the suffering that would make you put the gun in your mouth 
that's crude. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, I mean, the deadly suffering is in chapter seven. I'm saying that because I think we're all familiar enough with this thing that if it gets a grip on you, you understand it's deadly. So there's unendurable suffering in chapter seven. Literally, I don't think you can live. It is a, a deadly suffering that you just need relief from. And you may take that relief in many ways. I used the quote from Henry Bergson talking about the relief at the outbreak of World War I. I'm assuming that this is why young people cut themselves. In other words, just a little literal flesh and blood, a little real world pain and suffering to relieve you of your mental agony is preferable. In other words, if I can hurt my body and I can suffer in that way, that's preferable for this thing that I'm doing in my head. And so I think that there are the, the worst form of suffering is what Paul has described in chapter 7. You know, none of us want to admit it, but I think we're all probably kind of familiar with that suffering. And I think that's what we're relieved of in chapter 8. But there, it's not like we get rid of suffering. It's just that the source of suffering is from a different place. The source is outside of ourselves now. And I think you can handle that kind of suffering. That I don't know if he's describing the persecution, but he, in the end he's going to say, you know, up to and including martyrdom, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, hunger. and So there is a suffering, I think, just in being human. But there is a suffering that is unendurable. And then, then I think he's describing that we have the capacity to endure great suffering in light of the glory of God, in light of the coming glory of God. And of course, Christ is our model here, because Christ has endured the worst form of human suffering. But not that suffering of chapter seven, but that suffering of chapter eight. But isn't what you're, what you're, I think that, well, I mean, just to take a, a step further, I don't, I don't know that you say this in the book, but isn't that describing theosis? Because what, what Paul is saying is that that eye is dead and that it's Christ that lives, that he's describing. Yeah, it's a, it is a description of theosis. So that's the opening of the chapter, is a description of participation in the Trinity. Hmm whatever you call it that is sort of what paul is describing eight and i think the east gets right it's like uh, the sun totally transfigured you know that you're, you're describing a transfiguration that's a that's akin to a sort of an ontological new birth i mean that's the only way you could describe it that one subject is passing away you know the subject of that's grounded in deception desire the law you know condemnation all this stuff and then literally yeah. the new subject arises in baptism, as you describe in your book, you know, but that that new subject that arises, and this is what's interesting to me during the reading that I'm doing now, uh, is Christ. I mean, that's hard for us to wrap our head around, but that not that what Paul, uh, that that's who we are to, in other words, that Christ is, is living his life, uh, the life of the spirit, you know, through his people that, that were literally incorporated, uh, we become God. I mean, isn't it? I mean, you know, again, we're created people that language is kind of scary, but for us, maybe, you know, but isn't that the point that we become that we're, we're to become sons? That's what chapter eight is about is adopted as sons of God instead of, uh, you know, these sort of lost creature, you know, sort of fictitious subjects. Uh, Kierke, I always think of Kierkegaard on this because he's describing, you know, what does the redeemed person look like? 
if you're just watching them on the outside, you couldn't tell any different. He just goes about his day, eats his you know, lunch. But I think we can feel this, that all of us have been given a, a place and gifts and uh, almost a craft in our lives, that we're all artists working our crafts is a way to think of it. It is the, the art. It is the art of living. It is the art of the conversation. It's not the art of the deal. It's not the art of the finances, but it is the thing itself. The false understanding is that, that we're never present in what we're doing because it's always a kind of commodity. It's always something that we want to put on the market, that we want the value is not an inherent value. This almost sounds like Marx, but uh, I think Mar this is the Christian part of Marx that there is a beauty uh, uh, within just daily life, within the gifts and the art and the love that, that we do. And that's it. That's, that's what we got. That's beautiful. That's enough. That's sufficient. It was such a delightful, when I got to that chapter, I felt delight. I really did. I felt a sense of joy and of, um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard. It's hard up to that point. But once I got to this chapter, I, I was like, I, I was kind of, and I know you described as you were writing it, this sense of, of sort of beauty and joy, uh, this kind of overflowing. I remember you were, I remember as you were writing it and you were so much happier, <laughs> you know, uh, because that was the work you were doing the work just that produces joy. I think, you know, for me, it just all fell into place. And I, I hope this chapter, and I don't mean to make it a dialectic. It's not like you needed the one to get to the other. But I think that by putting the, the what it is we're departing from, that we can see clearly uh, what the difference is. You know, the, the idea of chat part six, the symbolic versus the law of life and the spirit. There is what displaces the symbolic. You know, and th this is scripture. You know, this is the depiction of empty words and fullness of words. That's a Lacanian category, but it's a category that's there in the Psalms. And it's there in Paul. It's a different relationship. I don't want to call it the symbolic order, or but it is a different relationship to language. Can we put it that way? In other words, that it's not that language is an end in and of itself, that life is in the words, but language is put into its proper place as a medium. And the medium is uh, the medium that God comes to us and the world comes to us and other people come to us. This is a class that has been about philosophy. And the, the great error of the philosophical move is to imagine that the transcendent truths of reason stand over and against the imminent frame. And what we've described is an incarnational truth in which we're not trying to achieve the heaven. We're not trying to go to the North Pole. You know, as Paul says in chapter 10, the word is in your heart, it's in your mouth. And so it's no longer a departure, a means, a medium of getting somewhere else, but that God has come to us in and through the word. And so it, it quite literally, again, it, you, can, I'm, you can talk about it philosophically, but I think quite literally, you know, it's no longer this relationship of a kind of masochistic relationship to a symbolic order, that there is the, the self-punishing sense in that. 
You understand, that's what Lacan and Zizek are describing throughout. This struggle that Paul is describing, they believe is the that is all you got. And so there's the symbolic and there's the ego. That is not a order that exists unto itself, but it is an order that was made to be filled by Trinitarian love. And I think that's what, what, what I'm describing throughout here. And so that's the last section, an empty word from nowhere versus an infinite depth of communication. That's the, you know, the, the spirit intercedes for us in groanings too deep. You know, maybe we can't express it. So that there is a kind of mystery in the Lacanian picture in that there's the unconscious. But now the unconscious is filled with the place of prayer, is, is filled with this depth of communion and communication. I mean, almost like, I guess I haven't thought about it this simply, but it's like, uh, it's almost like the, you know, the father displaces the law, the son displaces the, you know, the ego and the spirit displaces the body of death. Yeah. So in other words, it really is a Trinitarian sort of uh, alienation. It's a Trinitarian sort of fallenness. It's a Trinitarian failure to be. Yeah that once we say that it's no longer these distinct categories that are necessarily functioning as having a, a boundary between them. I think the last one is, oh, the fundamental fantasy versus truth. For Jacan, for Jacan, maybe that's what we should call them. The truth inheres in a lie. You need to lie to have the truth. There is only the foundation of a lie. And the idea here is that there is real communion and communication. And that is what we mean by truth. That part of what we mean when we talk about Christ as the way and the truth and the life is a dispelling of the lie, the death. In other words, it's an undoing of the lie. And that's the sense of what you, he's, he's the truth. Really quick. When in the spirit, when you're putting to death the deeds of the body and when you're like this is 192 um, being baptized into his likeness um, where the subject of death has joined herself to death. The subject of Christ has been joined to the ontological reality of God in the body of Christ. So the kind of not to like co-opt this again for like ethical purposes or ethical understanding, but the, I had the quick thought that like, I do know a lot of people as a missionary kid and a pastor's kid and went to Bible college and different things that even people who talk about new life in Christ or being baptized into his likeness or um, experiencing life and peace in Christ, this mode or this, yeah, this mode of existence, um, this, this reality, you know, to me, it, it, I, I haven't always seen, seen it lead to like a desire to alleviate suffering um this is where i'm just really stuck in you know that like to be is to be for the other whereas to be oriented towards um responding you know to human need and human suffering and this kind of thing so i know you said that that new life in christ enables a kind of ethical response or desire to because I guess that's what Christ did. He was a, he was if he was about healing people, right? Mm. So I guess I guess there's just that that piece that um, 
not that I'm saying it's missing. I'm just saying maybe one way to put it is when you put to death the deeds of the body, when you are transformed this way, you will be, it will transform how you treat others. You won't treat others as a commodity or as a, a means to get what you want, or just as you will see in like Kierkegaard says in works of love, each and every person is my neighbor. You will see a, a kind of um, humanity in, in every person that you, that new life in Christ will, will look like that kind of ethics that I'm sort of desiring, right? You will want to alleviate suffering when you see it and you will want to transform uh, the brokenness around you. Right. I, like basically maybe like I get stuck when people talk about new life or peace or, or the, like, I, I just think like, I don't know what that is. Is that like, right, not right. like I, sometimes I don't know what that means just because maybe I'm so like, to kind of Jewish in my thinking that like to, to know God is to know what, to hear the word of God is to know kind of what needs to be done in the world or something. But yeah. again, I don't know. My bro- Yeah. No, I like, I, I like what you're saying. And of course that's the problem is that we would fall into saying religious stuff that doesn't mean anything. And, Oh, have you been born again? Uh, mm-hmm. and do you know the peace of Jesus? In other words, what I've tried to do, I think that we can describe peace now. And when we say the word peace, we get a better depiction of what that is because we understand. In other words, the unethical, I think, is also part of what Paul has described in chapter 7. That agonistic struggle is so self-consuming that you really don't have time for the neighbor. Yeah, yeah. but when you put that to death... mm -hmm. So I, I and so I like that. I, I think you have to continually come back and do what you're wanting us to do and say, yeah, but what about the ethics of this? I think the whole thing is about a practical lived reality. And if you can't describe it, then we're not saying anything. If we're just falling into religious banter or religious language, and that's the great danger in this chapter. I felt it as I you know, that I said, sometimes I sound like, you know, anybody might be saying these things, uh, that we've heard this language, but we've heard it in a kind of meaningless context, where we don't know what the uh, change in human subjectivity, well, you could call that being born again, but usually when people say that, they really don't know what that looks like. But I think what we've described is a real shift in the human subject and and a way of saying this in terms of ethics, that the death-dealing subject is violent. It is going to be dealing in the necessity of this kind of self-masochism, and that will be translated into the morality that is immorality that we describe. The morality that says that you must sin, that grace may abound. The morality that you have to kill your neighbor in order to love them. Yeah. So to be, what to be free from that is to what, um, from that perverse relation to the law, and to that perverse understanding of of God and all those kinds of things. When you're free, freed from that, it frees you, opens you to, yeah, like to to new understanding, new relate new forms of relation like our relationality or something like like you to others to the world to god it it's transformative on all those levels 
to say it in the plainest language, and it may be so plain, it's embarrassing. I think that our natural tendency is to be threatened and jealous and envious of other people. They just pose a threat to us. And I think what we've described is why. You know, what is the anatomy of human envy and jealousy? It really doesn't make any sense if you tried to run it down. But I think we've just described that, oh, this thing, the, the fear is that we're undone by the other. The other is a threat to us. What we've described is we're, we're relieving that. The other is no, in other words, that now there is a, a participation in, in, in which we, you know, what, one of the gifts of the spirit, when we talk about life, that life is life together. It's corporate life. And the way that we enjoy the gifts of the spirit, we, I enjoy your gifts. I don't enjoy my own, right? We benefit from other people's gifts. And so it is, it, ne it necessarily incorporates us into a body. So that the, the thing that gave rise to envy, jealousy, and shame, you know, we don't want to admit to them because the, I, I have a feeling they're just a whole, there's so much part of our lives. I think that we really are addressing those categories that in some way we're, in, uh, we're uh, not able to love the neighbor in that former dynamic. And now we really can. You touched upon it, but I think that um, shame is key here because, you know, I think that it's out of shame that those other things arise, you know, the envy, the jealousy, all that other stuff, because the other, you know, you, you talked about shame. Uh, the effect of shame is the incapacity to love the other, you know, and you said that that's what the story of the scriptures is, is playing out from Genesis three, from the moment of the fall, Adam is incapacitated to love Eve. You know, he starts to blame, you know, he's, he's blaming. There's all this scapegoating going on. There's, you know, fear and murder in the next chapter because of shame. And so what you said is, is that's the narrative that's playing out. Uh, and that Paul, this is kind of a microcosm of it here in Romans 7. And I like what Nathan was saying, because I don't think that we can talk about human subjectivity apart from the other. You know, so we can't, we, we, you know, to imagine that we can just talk about human subject subjectivity as if it were just, you know, the ego and the law and the whatever. It's like, well, you know, the, the other makes us who we are. You know, it's not like we can right. be one apart from the other. Um, and so to me, what you talk about with shame, it, it, it really is. And it's what Paul is describing there in Romans 7. He doesn't use that word, but he's just, you know, that language of being undone or, or wretched or, you know, you could, you could go through and show just the, the whole dynamic there of how shame is working. But then, of course, in Romans 8, that that, that shame uh, is sort of, again, like transfigured uh, and, and there's love, you know, and so there's a capacity to love the other. There's, uh, there's prayer. In other words, the other is introduced. There is no other in, uh, in Romans 7, right? Like the, the other is kind of like, it's the law. It's the superego. It's a sort of other that's uh, like the big other. Yeah. But there's not like an actually existing neighbor or, you know, something on the other, uh, according to God. Um, in other words, this other in Romans 7 is always a threat. It's always, a, you know, it's always an opponent. I think that that's because of our orientation to shame that you're describing. Uh, our, well, really our sort of our ontological shame that's being taken away in Christ and being transformed so that now there really is room for the other in our subjectivity. I think that that's important. Like there is nobody in, in Romans seven, when Paul's describing what a human subject is, he's not talking about another person. 
he's just talking about I, as if he can talk, you know, as if we can adequately have access to ourselves apart from our neighbor. But that is the deception. That is the, the human project, right? Uh, and that is kind of like the shameful, I, you know, you described it once in Genesis 3 that like the loneliness, you know, that, that you, you know what I mean? That must be the, uh, the sort of like introduced there that causes panic and fear and, and covering ourselves and all this stuff. So I, I do think that if I can't remember if in the book, if you deal with that, but to me, that was one of the most important things about your work, you know, because not only are you describing sort of tragic condition that everyone is in apart from Christ, I, I think that shame is just a very helpful way where everyone kind of feels it and, know, and says, oh, yeah, I know what that's like, <laughs> you know, to name it that succinctly and to say that instead of the other being a threat to you, and that is what's putting you to shame, you know, the other, there is no shame, I, I suppose, without the other, right? That actually the other comes as a loving, uh, as God does in Genesis, you know, and he comes as a he covers, you know, and he, he, he comforts. That's you know. it, yeah. Yeah. So that actually James McClendon says this very nicely. That in shame there is a lost presence. As long as you're in shame, you're hiding. That's the that's the condition. You can't afford not to hide. And if you're hiding, if there's a lost presence, you can't be there for the other. That you're literally, I think, just we're we're unable to do it. And and so what is love? It is that being there for the other. It's that being present for the other. There is an incapacity in the description. So, I, yeah, I think the language of shame gets it. And, of course, when we're talking about shame, we've also shifted registers. As long as we're talking about guilt, we can do all the law stuff and all that. And it's just it really isn't dealing with the, the holistic subjectivity. But when we talk about shame, now suddenly we've shifted registers. We're not talking about law and guilt. We're talking about the human experience. Actually, shame, the language of shame is much truer to both the Old and New Testament than guilt. We're talking about ontology. Yeah. Right? I mean, once you once you move over to shame, yes. you're talking about yes. an ontological sort of... It is a lost presence. And I don't know if the, the word presence resonates with you. This is what Derrida keeps talking about. And talking about, you know, that what we would do with language is that we would find presence. And he, he actually plays with the word presence and present. And of course, what he's describing is this incapacity. He's really quite profound. And I would just sum up what he's saying is he's describing shame. And he's describing the shame condition that we're all subject to. Actually, I, I had a thought today about Friedrich Nietzsche, that, you know, his whole thing about the unreality of language. Well, in a sense, that's what all these guys are describing. That's, a, that's almost a psychological condition. But in some way, our words are just disconnected from reality. And they're, you know, what he's describing as a philosophical truth, I think, is actually a psychological truth, uh, an orientation that he's describing. I, I think you're right, Matt, to, to bring that in. That, of course, it's a different atonement theory. It's a different notion of what we're healed from. And in a sense, it's too personal to admit to things like shame. Shame is so shameful that we can't hardly address it. And of course, it gives rise to violence. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, that's the next for you. That's like the next. You've done so much with shame. I don't know if you've done a, you've written a little bit about it, you know, but I think that you've got some, some stuff that you could take, move the ball forward with what you've done in your book, you know, and 
because to me, that's what I've talked, you know, we've talked to, to, you know, guys in drug rehab and they understand guilt. You know, they, they say, yeah, you know, I broke the law. But when we start to talk about shame, we, we just saw it over and over. They would pop their heads up. They would listen. You know, they understood that there's something, there's something maybe even more at stake because everyone understands like honor and shame and kind of makes what I think that maybe the, what can be kind of abstract uh, in this conversation that we've had in this semester is made very concrete when we start to talk about our shame. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like your, your thought there, Nathan. And I hope this brings it home that the whole book is about ethics in a sense, because an incapacity for ethics and incapacity for love, and then an entry into that ethical loving capacity that we have. We're enabled to love the neighbor. I got nothing else. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. I, I see it there. I just, uh, just uh, exploring some thoughts. But I, no, I like it. I like it. That's McClendon's practical theology. I think this is the vocabulary and arcane as some of this can be. I hope it translates into a practical, lived kind of understanding. Thank you for a great class, Paul. Hey, I appreciate you guys. This has been a, a great class, and uh, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Next class is on the Holy Thanks. Spirit. Nice meeting everybody. Are you guys going to come Thank back to the Holy Spirit next class? <laughs> Well, thanks. Uh, it was really great, and uh, I'm grateful for that. It's really nice to meet everybody, Rob, Matt, you know, talk, chat with you guys a bit too and stuff. So uh, thanks very much. Glad back. you could come, Jason. Back for the Holy Spirit, everyone. I think it's going to be a good, a great conversation to talk about because that's what we're having. We know that that whole conversation will have to be about the other. It will have to be about ethics. It will have to be about uh, all the stuff that we've been we've been I think describing kind of like the dark side but to me to my mind the class on the Holy Spirit is all you know the light and the good and the you know what I mean the ethics and the do you know the good stuff so I hope to see you guys again it's been great thank you guys see you, so, uh, see you later have a great weekend okay you good too night. good night Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.